1: You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Patrick Lane, The Economist's Deputy Digital Editor. And on today's show, the coronavirus pandemic is a moment of reckoning for America's
2: healthcare industry. If ever Americans had been given a real-life case of why a universal healthcare system would be a good thing, this is the case.
1: And we take a glimpse into the contactless office of the future.
3: Using voice and facial recognition will become much more important. But first,
1: on Tuesday morning, the eight red-robed judges of Germany's highest court handed down a decision that may have far-reaching consequences across Europe.
4: Meine Damen und Herren, in Zeiten wie diesen, in denen die europäische in Nie dagewesener Weise herausgefordert wird, mag die heutige Entscheidung auf den ersten Blick irritierend wirken.
1: Under today's ruling, the European Central Bank has three months to justify the quantitative easing program under which it has bought up over two trillion euros of public debt. If the ECB can't do that, the court will order the German central bank, the Bundesbank, to drop out of the program. It's a nuanced verdict on an argument that has been rumbling for years, but it raises fundamental questions over the limits of the power of central banks and of the European Union itself. Tom Nuttall is our Berlin bureau chief, and he joins me now. Tom, there's an awful lot to unpack here. The judges themselves acknowledge that their decision could at first glance seem confusing. What is its immediate impact?
0: Well, we're all still processing it because it's complicated, but essentially national central banks inside the Eurozone, they purchase government debt in a coordinated fashion on behalf of the ECB. That's what the Bundesbank has been doing. That's what every central bank has been doing um, since 2015 under this program. What the court has said is that the ECB, in pursuing this program of quantitative easing called the Public Sector Purchase Programme, the PSPP, there are all sorts of economic consequences of this program that raise questions over whether it was a proportional way of meeting the monetary policy goals. And now what the court wants the ECB to do is to produce reasoning demonstrating that this QE program quantitative easing program is in fact proportional this program started in 2015 it carried on until 2016 it then went on hiatus and returned last year and remains active now so there are practical consequences of this if the ECB is unable to produce satisfactory reasoning within the next three months then the Bundesbank has got to start offloading all of the sovereign debt that it's piled up on under this program and of course as we're entering the deepest recession that the eurozone has known for quite some time that has raised eyebrows to put it mildly
1: the ecb has a three-month deadline do people think that that's something it can meet it's hard to tell whether that's tight or generous, really?
0: I mean, I, I think so. The ECB is stuffed full of extremely clever monetary policy lawyers who will figure out exactly what it is that they need to do in order to satisfy the court. So my guess is that this particular element of the ruling, although it's tricky and complicated, it probably won't mean, ultimately, that the Bundesbank has to pull out of the quantitative easing programme. I think that the bigger consequences probably lie elsewhere.
1: To be clear, this ruling doesn't covered the ECB's €750 billion pandemic emergency purchase programme, which significantly stepped up its government bond buying in response to the coronavirus crisis. But could that, too, now run into trouble?
0: I think that's one of the most important questions that arises from this verdict. The judges were explicit that their ruling does not apply to that programme. But if you look at the reasoning that they apply, then it's not very difficult to arrive at a conclusion that PEP itself could be in trouble. And that's because the ECB, when it implemented it at the end of March, it gave itself much more flexibility to determine which countries' bonds it was going to buy, much more flexibility than apply in other programs, so that it could, for example, disproportionately buy the bonds of countries like Italy or Spain. Even before the ruling came this morning, people were expecting a challenge in the German court against PEP specifically. What the judges seem to have done this morning is to open the door to that. And if that were to apply to PEP, then that throws the ECB's and in fact the entire Eurozone's response to the coronavirus threat into question. So this is a major problem not only for central bankers, but also for politicians when they're thinking about how they are going to respond to this threat if
1: you look back at what the ECB's done over the past, well, eight years, I suppose, going back to when Mario Draghi gave us that famous phrase, whatever it takes, does this put limits that didn't seem to exist before on what the ECB can do? In other words, can it not actually do whatever it takes?
0: Yeah, that's really the question. I mean, as you know, almost every unorthodox action that the ECB has taken since the whatever it takes speech has been challenged in one way or another in in the German constitutional court. None of them have been so devastating as to actually put a stop to them. But basically, the problem is that everything that the ECB seems to do now has a question mark hanging over it. And so it it seems to be operating under not whatever it takes, but whatever it takes, asterisk, footnote, terms and conditions may apply in Karlsruhe, where the, the German Constitutional Court is located. And I think that's the big consequence, the big lesson of the ruling today, that a central bank that is meant to act with freedom, with independence, to pursue monetary policy outcomes that are laid down in law is a limit placed on its freedom of action and freedom of manoeuvre.
1: Does this have implications beyond monetary policy as well? Because I think the European Court of Justice had said that what the ECB was doing was okay, and now the Federal Constitutional Court has said, well, it's only okay up to a point. Could there be implications in other realms where the ECJ says one thing and a national court then says another?
0: Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. I mean, in, in its verdict today, the, the German court laid out its explanation, as it's done before, of why it considers it legitimate for it to issue a ruling on which EU law is meant to be supreme. And essentially what they say is that given that the EU is not a federal state it should be within the remit of national constitutional courts to determine whether or not an EU court has gone beyond the bounds that are determined for it in the EU's treaties. And they said in this case, it did. It was in the legal jargon. It was ultra vires. Legal scholars, I suppose, can can squabble until kingdom come over whether or not that's a reasonable interpretation of EU law or not. But as you say, it basically raises a question that could be determined in all sorts of different realms, way beyond monetary policy. And in particular, one of the concerns that people have is that in countries that have been embroiled in legal squabbles with the European Court of Justice for years, especially Hungary and Poland, they'll be looking at this verdict very closely and rubbing their hands in glee if Germany, the biggest and perhaps most important EU member state, if its constitutional court can say that the European Court of Justice is overstepping the bounds, then why can their courts not say the same thing? So
1: although this appears to be quite a narrow delimited technical ruling it could actually have much broader implications not only for monetary policy but for European unity
0: that's absolutely right once again the German constitutional court has raised all sorts of extremely awkward questions not only over the eurozone but the entire European Union
1: there's a lot to digest there Tom thanks very much for explaining it
0: great pleasure cheers
1: you can read more about the significance of this ruling at economist.com if you're not yet a subscriber, go to economist.com slash to get your first 12 weeks for $12 or £12. Next, the American healthcare system is a sprawling patchwork of independent providers and many different payers. It is also big business. Some health sector companies have seemed to be outliers among the daily tales of woe coming from the stock market. But last week's US GDP data revealed a different story. A devastating collapse in healthcare spending is one of the biggest factors behind the worst contraction in US GDP since the financial crisis. The American healthcare
2: system needs a temperature check. Health is the number one topic on everyone's mind these days. It's a global health crisis. And you would think that, however crass it might sound, a for-profit American health system should be raking in the money. Vijay Vaithya is our US business editor. But in fact, because of fears of contracting COVID-19, many Americans are staying home. And we know economic activity has ground to a halt in restaurants and various other services functions. Well, going to the doctor's office or even going to hospitals for elective surgeries, which are a big profit center for hospitals, has ground to a halt. We're seeing 80, 90 percent declines in some cases of visits to hospitals Emergency rooms are often half empty. A number of companies, especially the for-profit ones backed by private equity, are slashing the hours for these emergency room doctors and nurses. There are layoffs envisioned. The private providers, their small operations uh, with only maybe a month of cash on hand, uh, many of those are on the brink of going bankrupt or getting gobbled up by big chains.
1: And what about general practitioners, You know, ordinary family doctors? Doesn't telemedicine help to keep their business going?
2: So you hit on an interesting point. Half of the primary care practices in America are small businesses with five or fewer involved. And so they have been hit very hard. There has been a shift to telemedicine. But until very recently, the insurers and Medicare, the big American government insurance program, did not compensate for virtual medicine or telemedicine at anywhere near the rates that it would for an in-person visit. And there were much tighter restrictions on what could qualify for telemedicine. And so this had been a huge problem. Thankfully for these small providers, the government has changed the rules. Just in the last few days, they've changed the rules retroactive to March 1st, offering full compensation for a wider range of services to be done as telemedicine. So that is likely to lead to one of the bright spots in this crisis for healthcare that is the adoption of telemedicine as well as the proper reimbursement for it may well stick even after the crisis is over.
1: And that leads on to thinking about the insurers because if people are going to the hospital less and going to the doctor less is this actually a good time to be a health insurer?
2: So the insurers are a mixed bag Uh, broadly speaking if you had to be any kind of firm in healthcare today in the United States you would probably want to be an insurer However, even the big insurers like Cigna, United, and Anthem have said that they are concerned about headwinds in part of their business. And that's because a big part of their business is providing coverage for big employers, America's Fortune 500 companies and so on. As they lay off lots of employees, which is what's happening in this crisis, as smaller and medium-sized clients struggle to even maintain the medical benefits that they've been offering, they're expecting a smaller health business but I I wouldn't shed too many tears. Insurers tend to be very well capitalized. When business rebounds after the crisis, they'll be there to pick up the profits from that. And there's one niche type of insurance company that's actually doing very well. Unfortunately, as people are laid off, they're more likely to go on Medicaid, which is America's government program for the indigent, and enter something called the individual insurance market. There, there are particular specialty insurance companies, and they're expecting a boom.
1: Now, another very big element of the American healthcare industry is, of course, the the pharmaceutical companies. They're in the spotlight at the moment because of the the need and the urgency for producing vaccines and treatments. What so far has the pandemic meant for them?
2: Investors think that pharma will make out very well. We've seen the shares of pharmaceuticals and biotech companies bid up despite the general bloodbath on Wall Street. The hope is that whoever solves this problem will make a big bonanza. Here's why that may be a misguided hope. Pandemic vaccines typically do not make a lot of money. And in this particular case, all of the big four companies that are involved in making vaccines, Sanofi, Glaxo, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, have said they're working on, in effect, a minor profit or not-for-profit basis. That is, they're doing this in the public interest. And of course, they want their costs to be covered, but uh, you see them behaving in a very unusual way. Collaborations and sharing of IP that we've never seen from Big Pharma on this scale. They have realized that governments are going to demand the drugs whether the companies want to give it to them or not. So whoever is the winner cannot refuse to give drugs, for example, to the emerging markets, uh, or they can't charge so much that the health system can't afford it. Governments will simply do compulsory licensing or in effect confiscate it. So the nature of the public health emergency means this is not likely to be a profitable money spinner. It's something they're doing to have a, a license to operate so that people won't think that they're so evil, as it were, to be seen as good citizens.
1: What about their non-COVID operations? Is the pandemic having a knock-on effect on the other things they do?
2: Yes, in fact, it is. Many clinical trials for unrelated drugs have been put on hold because they can't get enough patients to come out to the hospital and try the new drug. And this is likely to delay the launch of multiple drugs and delay research and innovation. And that will affect future revenues, or at least it will defer future revenues. Merck, for example, the American pharmaceutical giant, has announced a $2 billion revenue hit that it expects because a lot of its unrelated drugs that are typically administered by physicians or other staff It doesn't think that people will uh, go to doctors' offices to get these other drugs, and therefore, in effect, it's lost sales on those drugs. So there are ripple effects throughout the system, and not all of them are positive.
1: Can we try and pull these threads together a bit? I mean, doctors, healthcare, insurance, pharma, are there big changes in market structure likely to be underway?
2: The bigger likely to get bigger. And this is a broader trend across the corporate world, of course, that the bigger, better capitalised companies, for example, hospital chains or physician groups, are already starting to gobble up the smaller ones, the ones that are in deep distress. And there's not likely to be any antitrust scrutiny at this point because they are, in effect, saving doctors' offices that would go bust. And so no one can be against that in a time of crisis like this. So very likely what was already a fairly consolidated provider market will get even more monopolistic or oligopolistic. I think in terms of methods, we're going to see new techniques, uh, new ways of delivery. Virtual medicine has finally had its hour. And this had been resisted by the health industry, but I think we've crossed a tipping point on that as people see that many problems can really be dealt with virtually. The main change is in the mindset of the insurance company and the government, Medicare, in reimbursement. That was really the, the problem, and I think we've overcome that in this crisis. Uh,
1: Vijay, of course, healthcare in America is always a, a huge political issue. Do you think this upheaval could actually force a serious rethinking of the way Americans think about healthcare, and could that be to the benefit of American patients?
2: If ever Americans had been given a real-life case of why a universal healthcare system would be a good thing. This is the case. I think there's two likely outcomes. One is particularly likely, and that is we will certainly look very hard at the system of pandemic surveillance and preparation. And I think that is probably not controversial. I think we're likely to see a more muscular system for public health in America. On the other hand, the second change, which I think will be discussed is more controversial. That is an expansion of coverage to all Americans. I don't think the U.S. will ever have a system like the NHS in the U.K. We're not going to have government run the entire health system. However, I think there's going to be a lot more support for market-based solutions that get there in a more American manner than perhaps Britain has. If only to make sure that in the next pandemic, people don't feel that they can't afford to come forward and be tested, because that's a problem for everyone. Pure selfishness might ultimately motivate Americans to support something that's selfless.
1: PJ, thanks very much for your time.
2: My pleasure.
3: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some
1: not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And finally, at the end of last year, Money Talks took a tour of some of the world's shiniest new workplaces to get a glimpse of the future of the office. So
4: second floor yeah. is bacon, so on, is, so
0: Every floor serves a different your, cuisine.
4: ovens for hot braids,
0: pizza In the nursery, children are just waking from their afternoon naps. Along the corridor, there's a doctor's surgery, psychiatrist and massage therapist. There are even beds for anyone feeling a little bit tired.
1: For a top tier of companies, the office was fast becoming a place workers might never need to leave. But office working and social distancing really don't mix. As in so many other areas of life, the coronavirus pandemic has derailed these ambitions. And it may mean that the office of the future is unrecognisable.
4: We came into offices really in the late 19th century when overseers liked to watch what the clerks were doing and we've never really left. Philip Coggan is our Bartleby columnist, writing about management and the world of work. The age of the internet has only gradually changed the way that we approach office life and I think many employers were concerned that people who worked at home would bunk off. But it's been shown in the last few weeks that it is possible to work from home and be productive And I suspect we'll see a better balance in favour of home relative to going into work every day.
1: But Philip, some people are going to have to return to the office. And once they do, what are the main crunch points going to be? I mean, it seems to me that even just getting there is going to be something of a challenge.
4: Absolutely. So public transport is obviously a risk, particularly those of us who work in big cities. And if people choose to go by bike, They need changing facilities, which are often in offices quite cramped. But just getting through the door is difficult. If you think about going into any office building, a lot of people tend to arrive at the same time and leave at the same time. And you're very rarely more than six feet from someone. And then an even bigger choke point will be lifts, elevators. In big high-rise buildings, you already have to allow five or ten minutes to get up to one of the top floors. If you can only get two or three people in an individual lift then that's going to expand the weight a huge amount, probably 30 to 40 minutes. And when people do eventually get to their desks, what's going to await them then? The amount of space per worker in offices has been shrinking. One estimate is that in Britain has fallen by a quarter over the last decade, and that's to save on costs. But if you want to keep desks six feet apart, then you're going to get many fewer people in. Arup estimates you will only get about 30 to 35% of the previous total in a central London office. And that obviously makes life very difficult to get a lot of employees back to work. And then you've got to think about how you will separate yourself from your colleagues as well as that. So you may get these plexiglass screens in between you and the person next to you to prevent any coughs and sneezes drifting over. So we're going to look a bit more like the old days of the cubicle, possibly. Office designers have got a job on their hands, but
1: they're already coming up with ingenious ways to adapt workplaces.
3: I think in the short term, we will see much less investment in actually redesigning things and much more temporary and behavioural
1: changes. Despina Katsikakis of Cushman and Wakefield has been advising companies on how to make the workplace work better for nearly 40 years.
3: I think the cleaning protocol is likely to stick with us. We will see some significant developments in touchless. Using voice and facial recognition will become much more important. But
1: she's never seen anything like this before.
3: We moved over a million people and 10,000 companies back to work in China in a six to eight week period. And we started prototyping ideas and ways to manage social distancing, starting with an application of the six feet office concept in our Amsterdam office. It's easy for us to say we should stay six feet apart, but it's quite hard to visualize what does that mean? So if you think about simple ways to use design to nudge behavior, we have very simple patterns on the carpet that designates a six foot area around the person. So you're actually, Immediately know when you are within that zone of someone's proximity. Disposable mats that you pick up when you come into the office in the morning and you put it down on your desk and you can put your own keyboard on it. Increasing the cleaning protocols, keeping doors open, creating single directional circulation routes making sure you're actually using your own personal device to come into the building through a QR code, access to the floor, ordering prepackaged food to come to you. So basically changing the interface between you and the building, we need to recognize that we are social animals and we want to be together. So the office is not going away, but the need for a traditional office space might completely change
1: philip it sounds as if making all these changes could make sense from a health point of view especially the adaptations that encourage people to change their behavior but are high-tech interventions that would defend us against such threats in future really going to be worth the investment in the longer term?
4: One or two changes might make business sense. So one suggestion is to improve air filtration because that might eliminate disease. They do this in China because they have very bad pollution there. Some studies suggest improving air filtration actually improves productivity. You're more alert and it reduces health costs particularly for american companies but no the rest of it is too expensive i think and a lot of companies may prefer to wait until a vaccine comes out before committing themselves to spending you know on touch free doors and things like that what we may find then is that you get big companies with high skilled workers getting kind of first class offices with all the facilities that those skilled workers demand and the rest of us crammed in economy class and still pretty much slumming together four or five feet from each other once the vaccine is found.
1: Okay, and let's be selfish for a moment. What about us? I mean, The the Economist, including Money Talks, is being produced almost entirely remotely. I mean, I'm under a blanket in my loft room.
4: How do you expect office life to change for us once we go back? Well, one thing, the, the Monday meeting, which has about 50 people in a room all sort of sitting knees next to each other, It's hard to imagine how that can return. I can remember in the old days of Economist Tower having to sit cross-legged on the floor in the editor's office. I wouldn't be too sad to see that go, but what we will miss at The Economist is the snack cupboard. Sticking your hand into a big bag of crisps that everybody else in the office has been also rummaging around in. That's never going to survive the new climate. So I'm afraid it'll be better for our waistlines, Patrick, but it will be a bit duller in the office in the afternoons. Well,
1: it sounds like a very good reason to keep on working from home, as far as I'm concerned, Philip.
4: Yeah, my snack cupboard's always open. Yeah, sacrificed on the
1: altar of public health. Thanks very much, Philip. Thanks, Patrick. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London...